So our Old Testament readings this morning come from two books of prophecy, Isaiah and Habakkuk. They're quite short readings, so unless you're a very rapid page turner, you may wish to follow them on the screen rather than in the pages of the Pew's Bible. Uh, the first then is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, just two verses, verses 11 and 12. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And secondly, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them. But the righteous live by their faith. So our look at scripture continues with the New Testament and with our series looking at the letter to the Hebrews and this week we'll be looking at chapter 10 and then a portion in chapter 9. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do not therefore abandon that confidence of yours, it brings great reward. For you need endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you ever have those days when the tension between the world as it is and the world as it should be seems particularly acute. Whether it's something in your own life or in the life of someone close to you or something in another part of the world entirely affecting people you will never meet, whether it's on the streets of Moss Side, sometimes the world just isn't the way that the world should be. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer, and the world just keeps turning, grinding all to dust with the inexorability of an unfeeling machine. Where in all of this, we might well wonder, is God to be found? Where is hope? Where is life, joy and love? Now, forgive me, I don't mean to get you depressed on a Sunday morning. But these were the questions facing 
the congregation who first received the sermon to the Hebrews that we call the book of Hebrews. They had been the questions that Israel had wrestled with through their long years in exile and oppression six centuries earlier. And they are still questions that haunt our own lives some 2,000 years later. The problem is, the world is not the way it should be. And this tension between the world as it is and the world as it should be is an unresolved tension that runs through all of human history. And the question of where God fits into it is one of the great mysteries of theology. So today, as we come to the end of our eight-week series looking at the book of Hebrews, we find ourselves asking, along with so many other people of faith down the millennia, what are we to make of the fact that good so often seems to lose out to evil? Certainly, for the small and struggling group of Christians for whom this was first written, probably in Rome, things were very far from the way they should have been. Their faith in Jesus, in the stories of his death and resurrection, led them to believe that they were worshipping the Lord of all, the King of the universe, the one in whom power and love came together to liberate the oppressed and bring good news to the poor. But their daily reality, when they left their places of worship and had to go to work or to their homes, their daily reality was that the emperor reigned supreme, not only over their own city, but over the whole of the known world. And that they were required by Roman law to make offerings of worship to the emperor. And the risk of punishment for treason was there if they refused to do it. The world of their faith conviction did not match the world of their daily experience. Does that sound familiar? We're here, we worship Jesus as Lord, and then we go out there and it doesn't really look like he is. For the recipients of Hebrews, it was as if Jesus had come to the earth, inaugurated this wonderful revolution of love and forgiveness and new life and eternal hope, and then it vanished as suddenly as he had appeared, leaving those whose lives he had touched and transformed to work it out for themselves under hostile conditions. You may remember if you've been following this series with us over the last couple of months. And if you haven't, you can of course catch up via our website. You'll remember that the congregation had a basic problem, which was that they had lost sight of Jesus. His historical incarnation was receding into history with each year that went past, and his spiritual presence for them in their worship was that they were worshipping him up on high, seated at the right hand of the Father, which rather left them 
a bit lost and alone and increasingly dispirited. And nowhere is this sense of abandonment more acute than in the moment of tension between the world as it is and the world as it should be. Maybe you too, like me, like so many have gone before, feel something of the frustration of this disconnect. We pray, we try, we trust, we act, we hope, we persevere, and still the world is not changed. In fact, if we're honest, still we ourselves are not changed, or at least not changed enough. We still sin, we still get it wrong, we still hurt others by our ignorance or by our design. We still stand in need of forgiveness, in need of transformation. Was this what Christ died for? Is this the good news of the resurrection? Is this it? Is a hope never realised all that we have to hope for, even after 2,000 years of Christian witness? I mean, forget the 35 years that was causing problems for the congregation of Hebrews. What, what about us? It's been 2,000 years and still it doesn't really seem to change all that much, does it? I think here we need to start hearing the wisdom of the preacher of Hebrews as he points his congregation to one further final vision of Jesus. Our series looking at the different presentations of Jesus in the book of Hebrews have already showed us how the preacher shows his congregations the sustaining Jesus, present in and through all things, the pastoral Jesus, entering fully into human weakness and suffering, the speaking Jesus, declaring God's word for all who will listen, the familial Jesus, inviting his followers to be part of his family, the accessible Jesus, opening the pathway to God, the visible Jesus, revealing God to humanity, and the vulnerable Jesus, dying for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. And finally, after all these different presentations of Jesus, the preacher points his congregation to the returning Jesus, who has not, he asserts, left the world for good. He's not simply appeared historically had a three-year ministry, died and then gone up to heaven and spending the rest of the time up there with no further interest in what his followers do. The preacher asserts that Jesus returns to bring to completion that which he started in his earthly ministry. And here we find ourselves in the middle of the theological doctrine known as eschatology which despite popular opinion is not what Houdini did. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end. It is the theology of the last things. And as we try to get to grips with the preacher's description of the returning Jesus, I'd like to sound a note of warning. There is a great danger with eschatology, and this is that it simply pushes 
our solution to our problem of a disconnect between the way the world is and the way the world should be into some imagined or hoped-for future when at some point wrongs will be righted and tears wiped away. This can be and has been quite abusively used over the years. I'm thinking of situations of things like slavery. Is your life terrible now? Never mind, trust in Jesus because it'll be fine at some point in the future. And that can be used to perpetuate systemic abuse. Live with the difficulty now. Don't fight for righteousness and justice now. It'll all be all right one day. God will sort it out in the end. In some versions of eschatology, this is depicted as a heavenly judgment scene, which everyone experiences after death. If you've ever been to see uh, an enactment of one of the medieval mystery plays, uh, we went a couple of years ago to see the Globe Mysteries, they always end with the final judgment when the audience are separated one from another. And, you know, it's this idea of some go to eternal damnation and some go to heaven. This idea that, that after death, everything gets sorted out. In other versions of eschatology, it's presented as a recreation and purification of the earth through some process of tribulation by which the evil get their comeuppance in this world before the righteous get their crowns of eternal glory and get to reign for a thousand years. Sometimes you get a combination of these two as people try and marry them together in ever more creative eschatological schemes relating to debates about pre, post or amillennialism, partial or full rapture, pre or post or partial tribulationism, not to mention all the debates around dispensationalism. And if none of this means much to you, then I'm going to say to you that's fine by me. My suggestion is you spend your time more productively elsewhere. But there will be those of us here this morning whose past includes a certain kind of church where these things really matter. To the extent that if you disagree on some finer point of eschatology, you run the risk of being declared a heretic and kind of drummed out the fellowship. Some of us will have grown into faith, haunted by a future image of the returning Jesus descending from the clouds with wrath and punishment, coming back to kick sinners and take names. Sing it with me if you like. You, I'm not going to sing it. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He already knows he's naughty and nice. Jesus Christ is coming again. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Jesus Christ is coming again. Could be the theme music for some churches, I know. I think it sounds terrifying. But maybe you experienced the other kind of eschatology, where the whole world itself is going to be judged, destroyed, and recreated. This is particularly prevalent on the other side of the Atlantic and is often linked to a lack of concern about or a denial of issues like climate change or conservationism. 
whereby we don't really need to care what happens to this planet because it is literally going to hell anyway. What matters is moral purity and preaching salvation to those who are lost. This kind of eschatology has tended in recent years to focus around two key issues of abortion and human sexuality as the defining markers of orthodoxy. And there are whole swathes of uh, our brethren, the Southern Baptists, who absolutely hang everything on this kind of eschatology. And in the face of these two eschatologies, the personalised and the globalised, how are we to hear the preacher of Hebrews' call to encounter the returning Jesus? What does it mean to think Jesus is returning to us if we are not going to end up in either of those two places I've outlined, which I think are are both distortions and unhelpful ones at that. Well, I'm going to suggest that the beginnings of an answer lie in the Lord's Prayer and the Old Testament. Firstly, the Lord's Prayer, which we have already said together this morning, as we do pretty much every week. Jesus tells his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The transformation in view here is not something to be experienced after death, post-mortem, or in some renewed creation. Rather, the Christ-like prayer is for the kingdom of God that is beyond us to come into being in the world around us. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the world as it should be to break in upon the world as it is. And as with all things theological, there's a nice technical term for this. It's called realised eschatology. It's where the doctrine of the end of things becomes realised in our midst. Basically, it's a way of saying that instead of the solution to our problem of attention between the world as it is and the world as it should be, being somewhere in the future or somewhere eternally beyond us, actually, it is breaking in upon us in our present as the world beyond us becomes the world around us. That, I think, is the eschatology of the Lord's Prayer. And so the preacher of Hebrews then takes us through a textual allusion to the time of the Israelite exile in Babylon. And we're at the readings Duncan gave us from the uh, Old Testament. The Israelite exile in Babylon was a time when the world as it should be was very far removed from the world as experienced by the exiles. They were so far from their homes, no prospect of restoration. Think of those who are crossing Europe at the moment in search of a new life. No possibility of going back to Syria. Just a desperate hope that death might not be the end. That was very similar to the situation faced by the ancient Israelites when they were exiled to Babylon. And it was to these exiles in Babylon that the prophet known as Second Isaiah wrote what have become called the Songs of the Suffering Servant. 
which depicted the suffering of the people of Israel, God's servant, as a precursor to their eventual restoration to their land. Israel's suffering was depicted by Isaiah as absorbing the sins of Israel's tormentors and as opening the possibility of a new world breaking into their present suffering to transform the world as it is into something closer to what the world should be. And then the preacher whisks his readers through another allusion to the writings of the prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, I never know which. And Habakkuk was addressing the situation faced by the post-exilic Jewish community. So the hope expressed in 2nd Isaiah had come true. The suffering of the servant of Israel had eventually led to a restoration back to the land, repatriation back to their native homeland. You would think at that point all would be well, but Habakkuk tells us it is not. All it seems was not well in this new paradise. And the Chaldeans, the new Babylonians, were threatening their safety. And the book of Habakkuk takes the form of a dialogue between the prophet and God. The prophet raises a complaint to God about rampant social injustice in Judean society. And God's response is a challenge to the prophet to write on a billboard large enough even for a runner to see. Did you see any of the uh, marathon this morning in Berlin? Do you imagine that billboard big enough that somebody running past can see it? And what is to be written on that billboard is a promise that the world will not be like this forever. Because the future is continually breaking in upon the present. Whatever the oppression of the day, whatever the experience of disconnect with the way the world should be, it will not last because evil is not eternal. Last week, Liz and I uh, were in Berlin for my birthday. Did I mention I had a birthday? I've been to Berlin before. I went in 1990 and I dug out my photographs that I took when I was there in 1990, just after the wall came down. And I've got photographs of the death strip that people would get shot if they ran across it. I've got photographs of Checkpoint Charlie with the barriers raised. I've got a bit of Berlin Wall upstairs that I paid a kid a couple of marks for as he plucked it from the rubble. Nobody ever thought that that evil of a divided city was going to end. Now we're walking around Potsdamer Platz, this modern, beautiful, vibrant city. The evil has given way to the new, but of course the new brings its own host of problems. This is not the perfect city, it never will be. History carries on. And so in these two Old Testament prophetic readings, one from the time of exile, one from the time of restoration from exile, we have a view of history that is essentially cyclical. Oppression and evil give way to justice and restoration, and that's good. And then evil raises its ugly head again because humans are still humans and they still do evil, and so on through the centuries. Is this the answer 
ponders the preacher of Hebrews. Sometimes the world as it should be breaks into the world as it is. Sometimes exiles are restored. Sometimes walls come down. And sometimes walls are built. And communities are divided and evil is done again. Is that, is that just it? Well, kind of, I think he says. Yeah, that's, that's human history. But I think the preacher takes us a bit further into this. Because he goes on and addresses the role of the faithful people of God in all of this. Where do we as God's people, where does his congregation, struggling as they are in Rome, where do they fit into all of this? What is it that keeps evil at bay? How does the world beyond us break in upon us? And the answer he offers is that it is as the people of Christ proclaim the gospel of Christ that Christ returns once again to the earth, bringing new hope, new life, new love. And so he encourages his readers, be they first century readers or 21st century readers, to not give up meeting, to persevere in worship and prayer and in encouraging one another. He tells them to never abandon their confidence in Christ because this is what will give them the endurance to run the race of life to its faithful conclusion. And key in all of this is the repeated proclamation of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus who, like the suffering servant Israel in Babylon, takes the sins of the many into his own suffering to bring healing and freedom and release to all. And here we come to the crux of the preacher's point about the returning Jesus. For him, Jesus has broken the spiralling pattern of good giving way to evil, giving way to good, and so on ad infinitum. Because in his death, Jesus has overthrown the pattern of death followed by judgment. Listen again to the verses from our reading from chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In Jesus' death, the power of sin to continually re-ensnare and entrap humanity is broken. Jesus does not return to punish with his list that he's checked twice, but to rescue. He comes to gather and not to trample. And he comes a second time and a third time, and a fourth time, and again, and again, and again, wherever and whenever the people proclaim the good news of his resurrection. He comes, when he comes, to bring new life with resurrecting power. And so, to us today, we each of us, individually and collectively, need a daily new advent. We need Christ to come to us again 
and again and again to break us out of our acquiescence, our meeting together, our worship, our prayer, our collective and individual naming of Jesus as Lord, all these keep us from re-enslavement to sin. As the one who is beyond us keeps breaking in new ways into our presence with love and forgiveness and new life and new hope and new vision for the future. So what might this mean for us here in Bloomsbury in 2018? How are we to encounter the returning Jesus in our context? Well, firstly, I think we can lay to rest the fear of the future that unhealthy and unhelpful eschatologies have given some of us. The returning Jesus is not a cause for fear, nor for disengagement from the troubles of the world. In fact, the opposite. The Jesus who comes to us again and again, calling us to pray that the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, calls us to then live and work for that coming kingdom. The abolition of the transatlantic slave trade was driven by Christians who had a vision that the world should be different. Where will the vision for a new world come from in our time? Where will the issues of evil and oppression in the world around us, where will they begin to be addressed? Surely it is with us. As Christ comes to us. Again, giving us a vision for new life and new hope drawing us from death to life, from sin to forgiveness. But where and in what ways will we meet the one who will not let us alone? He comes to us daily from beyond ourselves, calling us to new life and fresh purpose. Well, I'm going to suggest that we don't just meet him in our relationships here. I mean, I'm very glad that the preacher to Hebrews says, don't neglect to meet together as some have done, otherwise we'd have no congregation. So, you know, it's good to see you and thank you for taking that seriously. But I think actually the call here for collaboration is not just between the gathered fellowship who gather in this building on a Sunday morning. Some of you may have noticed, if you were being very attentive, that the language I've been using to describe the doctrine of eschatology was borrowed from the Citizens UK community organising methodology. You see, if you've ever done any uh, organising training, either here or in the States or in the other places where this is so active, they talk continually about the fact that the world as it is is not the way the world should be. And the purpose of the citizens organising movements and strategy is to build enough power to be able to make changes in the world that will have lasting effect for good. And it's no coincidence that so many churches, including our own, are part of this, along with mosques and synagogues and schools and universities 
and secular community organisations. The preacher to the Hebrews knew the benefit of not giving up meeting together because he knew that we are stronger together than when we are alone. And so in London in 2018, Bloomsbury will need its allies. We will need our partners, people who will join with us in catching a God-given, Christ-inspired vision that the world should not stay as it is now and that it needs to be changed for better. So from Dragon Hall, a partner in the local community hall, to the Simon community who do so much work with the homeless and the vulnerable with us, from the Soho gathering, reaching out to offer welcome and inclusion to those who are part of the LGBTQ community, to our ecumenical partners with the Catholics and the Swiss Church and the French Protestants and the Church of England, all this huge diversity of Christianity that we've got on our doorstep, to our commercial hirers who rent this place during the week from us. We need to continue to try and find ways of working together with others in order to bring the world beyond us into the world around us. But this is not just a call for us to become a social enterprise. We must never forget, we must never lose sight of the fact that the reason we do it is because of Jesus because it is Jesus who is the one who lifts our eyes above the horizon as we worship him. If we believe that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is above all other earthly powers, then we have confidence, as the preacher to the Hebrews says, that we can aim towards the world that is coming and live as if it were true until it becomes true in our midst. It is Jesus who gives us the glimpse of the alternative that he calls us to work and live towards. One of the most famous quotes from Martin Luther King was that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, he said. What is not often realised about this quote is that for Martin Luther King, it only made sense to say this in the context of his living faith in the power of Christ to effect change in the human heart. He doesn't think that the world is just in every day and every way getting better and better. The arc of the moral universe tends towards justice because Christ is at work in the world through the people of Christ, coming again and again and again, wherever structural and personal oppression and injustice raise their heads, calling us to bend the arc of the moral universe towards justice. And the danger which liberal, socially-minded Christianity can face is that we end up losing sight of Jesus in the midst of all our striving to bring into being this new world for which we've been so earnestly praying. Well, said the preacher of Hebrews to a congregation that had lost sight of Jesus. There he is, coming to you again and again and again. 
breaking into your present with a promise of something different and calling you to act collectively and individually in response to his presence. So, provoke one another to love and good deeds. Do not neglect to meet together. Work with others, encouraging one another. Do not abandon that confidence of yours because it brings great reward. And you will need endurance, like a marathon runner, for the change you seek is coming, but it comes slowly. Don't shrink back, but live righteously by faith. And trust that your failings and sin are removed from you by Jesus, who leads you from death to life, and who comes to you again and again and again. Let us pray. Great God of the whole earth, we thank you this morning for those through whom we have met you, for those who welcomed us, sustained us, and showed us the strength of your boundless love. We bring before you this morning our aspirations, hopes, and concerns as a community, being grateful for what we have been given and eager to give back and share what we have with others. Loving God, we pray for those who experience injustice in their daily lives, those who suffer because of the widening gulf between your words of hope reconciliation and resurrection and flawed laws set by men. Loving God, we pray for those who are rejected or expelled from society, not for something they have done, but for what they are or represent for their nationality, religion, gender, age, status, or color of their skin, and face all sorts of borders they are unable to pass through. Loving God, we pray for those who are exploited those who are not fairly and decently rewarded for their work and efforts, those who are inflicted unbearable and unjustified hardship, even when living in some of the richest and most productive 
economies the world has ever seen. Loving God, we pray for those who are threatened by forces that are beyond their personal control, either at individual or collective level, from depression and self-harm to environmental damage and war. Loving God, finally we pray for ourselves. May we find in you the courage and resilience to join those who step up and speak loud as they refuse to accept all these evils as sad but inescapable realities. May we find through you new ways to change what can be changed for the better. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.